Welcome to the Crystal O Show, where I teach wellness entrepreneurs how to build a wealthy practice and an abundant life so that they can heal a lot more people. Welcome to this episode where I have an exciting guest here today. I listened to him a lot being interviewed, and he is absolutely fascinating. So today, I bring you an Iowa boy turned FBI's lead international kidnapping negotiator, and he teaches how to gain a competitive advantage. So Christopher Voss is his name, and he's the author of the national bestseller, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. And he's also the CEO of the Black Swan Group. So his book, Never Split the Difference, has been listed by Inc., dot com as one of the seven best how to negotiate books of all time. That's a pretty big achievement. Chris was, like I said, the FBI's lead international kidnapping negotiator. So he teaches people how to negotiate in business. He's very unique and he's got a lot of experience in this. He's also got an MBA programs at the University of Southern California and Georgetown University. And he's also the recipient of the McDonough School of Business's uh, Peter J. Gonzalez Jr. Award of Excellence in Adjunct Faculty Teaching. And his students and clients have used these techniques that we're going to talk today about successfully in everything from negotiation between a husband and wife over a Christmas tree to a billion-dollar Wall Street transaction. So at both the University of Southern California and the McDonough School of Business, Chris's class is one of the most sought-after and interesting courses there. So prior to teaching at USC and MSB, Chris taught international business negotiation at Harvard University and was on the teaching staff at the Harvard Law School. So welcome, Chris. Crystal, thank you very much. Yeah, <laughs> I can hear you. That was After that long introduction, I'm looking forward to what I have to say. So tell me something. What led you initially to want to be part of the FBI? What happened? Because you're just well, from a you small know, town in Iowa. I am a small town Iowa boy, absolutely, Mount Pleasant, Iowa. You know, I wanted to be in law enforcement. And my original thought that was in my head was to be a police officer in a city, and that city ended up being Kansas City, Missouri, which is a great town. And then I got interested in federal law enforcement, and the next thing I found myself with the FBI in New York City. I don't know how these things happen. You go up to I-80 <laughs> and you make a right, I think. I love that. Okay, so listen, let's talk about kidnappers. Okay, I'm just going to get right into it. So aren't kidnappers erratic? Let's get into this juicy stuff. So this is exciting. Tell me about kidnappers. Are they irrational, and how does this apply to normal people? Because you've taken what is really quite an interesting topic and a lot of really cool experiences, and it sounds like almost life-threatening experiences, and you've been able to incorporate that into business. And people are listening and using what you're advising. So let's talk about kidnappers and how irrational they are. Kidnappers are irrational. Listen, I can tell you, Kanye West is irrational. You know, right? Donald, Everyone Donald is. Trump is irrational. Who knows? Now, you know, kidnappers—they're businessmen. You know, and when I first realized that, I was stunned by it. But then it made all the sense in the world. Hostage takers, kidnappers—they're just all patterns. For lack of a better term, it's pattern behavior. What is pattern behavior? Everybody has ways that they cope with things, uh, whether you like it or not. And kidnappers are commodities dealers internationally, tough, hard bargainers. They're used to getting what they want, winning through intimidation. That's the way kids And, you know, once you kind of learn to navigate how one-dimensional that is on the other side, they became kind of easy to deal with, as crazy as that sounds. 
So how does that apply to, say, normal people? Are normal well, uh, people, are we irrational? Yeah, no. We all have patterns. Rationality is like beauty in the eye of the beholder because we all are driven by what we care about. And okay, we so we're talking about emotions then. So irrational yeah. and emotions. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. There you go. Exactly right. You know, what's your passion and purpose in life? I mean, some business people preach you have to have a passion. You know, what drives you? What gets you out mm -hmm. of that morning? What do you care about? So by definition, we all care about different things, but we all are uh, being human beings. While we may lack certain feelings that other people have, you know, sociopaths lack guilt. That doesn't mean that they lack anger or desire or selfishness or lustfulness or the great motivator of human behavior. You know, so once you start to tap into that stuff, hostage negotiators never never assumed that people were rational. We always figured we were, people were emotional. So the hostage negotiation skills is this great set of tools that can deal with people who are driven by their emotions, which is a redundant term because we're all driven by our emotions. Yes, we are. And you know what? It's so funny. I was talking to a business partner of mine, happens to be a man. He's done really well for himself. And we had the funniest conversation about crazy women, right? Okay. So ah. I love to have these conversations with men because I learn so much. And, you know, I'm open-minded. So I'm listening. He pulls up a video and this guy in this YouTube video has got a, a diagram of he's basically rating women from one to 10 on a level of crazy and, and who to stay away from. It's just, it was so cute. It was really cute. But it reminds me of what you're talking about. You know, it just this whole emotion and trying to figure people out and how deep their emotion goes and their passion goes. So how did you realize that there were parallels in hostage negotiating and in the business world? That was a clumsy well, way to ask. but No, I first started to become a hostage negotiator. I had to volunteer on a suicide hotline to get some mm. experience of just like really deep listening, listening in between the lines and having to help move people in a different direction in a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. The crazy thing was, you know, they taught us from the beginning on the hotline that you spend no more than 20 minutes on the phone with anybody, which I found 20 minutes. Like, I thought we were supposed to talk to them for hours. How long is this going to take? But uh, I found out that once we used the set of tools they gave us, 20 minutes was more than enough time. So that I could move people so powerfully. I thought, you know, this is why should only people on the hotline be the recipient of this kind of relationship building and this kind of listening, you know, this kind of connecting with another human being. Mm. So from the very beginning, I wanted to understand how to make that work in my personal life. And then I applied that stuff in hostage negotiation. And then I found myself in an attempt to move our hostage negotiation knowledge better forward. Several years later, I negotiated my way into the Harvard program on negotiation as an FBI agent. And the people that were there, I mean, smart, decent people, they saw it before I did. Sheila Heen, still a very good friend of mine, author of a book called Difficult Conversation. You know, they said, look, you're doing what we're doing. You're just, your stakes are different. And your skills are actually better than ours. I mean, they had this broad intellectual understanding of it. But as a hostage negotiator, I walked in with these eight specifically designed emotional intelligence skills. And several of them said, you guys are far more advanced in this than we are. And it applies in this stuff. And finally, I just believed them after working with them for a while. And I found that they were right. Mm -hmm. I love that you brought up emotional intelligence skills. It's something that if you think it's 
complicated or do you think just anybody can figure it out? Sometimes we overcomplicate things. And I think I'm just going to say, I'm going to put my head out there. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. I feel like that women overcomplicate things. And I've worked with both men and women in business. And I feel like that there's emotion uh, attached to that. There's a lot of emotion that overcomplicates things. Can you can you expand on what I just said? Well, yeah, I'll talk just a little bit about, first on emotional intelligence, we've all got it. And it depends upon how much we've exercised it, is how dormant it might be. But the great news about emotional intelligence is, you know, with just a fair, small amount of exercise, small amount of practice, you can get good at it very quickly. And there's kind of no limit to how long you can continue to grow it. Like your IQ has a limitation. It's like your height. You're only going to get so tall no matter how much milk you drink growing up as a kid. Mm -hmm. You know, like I drank milk like crazy and I'm an inch taller than my father. That's it. I couldn't get any farther <laughs> than that. But, you know, I always want to look down on my father because I grew up with him looking down on me. You know, mm -hmm. he was my hero. I mean, my father was my hero. But then uh, your emotional intelligence, you can continue to grow that and develop that up to and through your 80s. And I think even even beyond that, you know, they're saying you're mid-80s now because that happens to be to what level that people are still being very active in business. And so it's, it's almost unlimited. So you can you can grow it with just a small amount of attention. You'd be stunned at how quickly it comes to you. What is the craziest idea from hostage negotiating that you use in your everyday life now? All right, that's a great example because I just spoke at the Texas Association of Hostage Negotiators, telling them how I'm applying this stuff to business. And there were 400 people in the room, and I stumped them all with this question. I said, you know, what skill do you have that's designed to get a yes out of the other side? And the room goes dead silent, and their minds all go blank, which is exactly what the way I did when one of my co-writers asked me that question as a hostage negotiator. How do you get somebody to say yes? And the answer is we don't. So imagine trying to have conversations and negotiations when you're not trying to get the other side to say yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, an illusion. Yes is often counterfeit. Yes is often conditional. How many times have we thought we had a yes and we found out later that the other side was just trying to get information out of us or just trying to play us along until we would stop bothering them? So mm -hmm. the crazy idea is we're not, I'm not trying to get people to say yes. What the, the question might be like, ah, that's all I ever do. You know, the most famous negotiating book that was ever written is called Getting to Yes. What are we supposed to, what are we supposed to get them to say? Well, there's, there's a couple crazy things. One of them is no, because people, when you say yes, you have to commit to something. And when you have to commit to something, you worry about what you've left yourself in for and you become anxious. When you say no, you've protected yourself. So that means you suddenly you centered yourself and you're actually more willing to listen. Quick example of that is I call somebody on the phone. I don't say, hey, we got a few minutes to talk. I say, are you in the middle of something? Mm -hmm. It gets them focused. And then after that, what am I trying to get people to say? What I'm trying to get them to say is that's right. Is that's what we say when someone has said something that we completely believe in. That's right. And it's a moment that we connect with other people. They feel connected to us if they look at us and say, that's right. They feel very connected to us. And that's what I'm trying to get people to say. It's crazy to think that way. You know, a lot of what you just said, I teach 
small business owners and even those just starting out with startups that really don't have any skills at all. But what you just said about connection and then the 20 minutes, I always tell them you've got to have that strategy session, you know, nailed down for about 20 minutes, not to try to control the conversation, but to lead them to a result or answer, or it can easily turn into a long conversation of nothing, right? But I say connection is currency and that's what you're saying. Connection is currency. So getting them to that's right place or agreeing with you. Do you feel like that's connected to that emotion that we talked about earlier or that irrational, whatever it is that makes them passionate? So when they say that's right, what they're really saying is I agree with you? Well, you know what? They're saying they agree with what you said, which is actually a deeper connection because I agree with you. Sometimes we feel like maybe we've given in, and then if we give in, you know, maybe there's some resentment, maybe there's some defensiveness that's left out. But, you know, that's right is, you know, what you just said is the truth, and we can both embrace it together. I think it's more collaborative. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the subtle distinctions. Okay. So basically, this craziest idea that I asked you about was to flip it and think to go for the no, to get a no out of somebody instead of a yes initially to then lead you to a connection. Very, very interesting. I love that. So which of your principles or pieces of advice are the most surprising to your students and your clients? Well, the first one that you don't want to get somebody, you stop driving for yes. That yes right. is actually bad. That yes, that yes is even success. Mm-hmm. I love that. I, I love that people the question, if yes is success, then what is no? And people typically say, well, no, it's failure. And, and then I said, well, you know, what you'll find out for me is almost every question is a setup question. And the setup here was who says yes to success. And then the other thing is everybody wants to make their point. I think it's really important. And, and a, a colleague of mine retired from the Department of State was telling me, yeah, with this negotiation class. And they said, you know, you got to make sure the other side understands where you're coming from. And so what that is is that the parents get their friends talking to each other because if I'm intent to make sure you understand where I'm coming from, there's a pretty good chance you're doing the same thing, which means each of us are initially focused on not listening. We're focused on talking. You want to win. You want to get ahead in that dynamic. Focus on going second. Focus on hearing them out first. It horrifies a lot of people. Like in today's day and age, today especially, this week especially, post-election, we have two sides of the country that are horrified at the thought of hearing the other side out. And until somebody decides to hear the other side out, we're going to continue this name-calling that's going on throughout all forms of media. And we're kidding ourselves whether or not we think we're going to get anything done while we're calling the other side names. Yeah. Yeah. So I heard you call listening as unsexy. You said that in an uh, interview. What does that mean? Yeah, you know, nobody says, I'm going to go out there today and I'm going to listen. Nobody gets excited by that. You know, people get excited. They want to be great orators. I want to speak and I'm going to sway the masses by what I say. Well, occasionally you can do that. You know, one of my favorite politicians of all time was actually Mario Cuomo. And he listened first. And then I saw him turn crowds that were hostile to him personally. And that's why, you know, so he kept getting voted as he could have been governor of New York for as long as he wanted to. And the media was fascinated with him because 
It was clear he held personal beliefs that were different than what the vast majority of New Yorkers held. Mm -hmm. But since he heard people out all the time, they voted him into office time after time after time. It is powerful, isn't it? Yes, you're so right. It's ridiculous. And the other side, actually, the other side finds it sexy. Like, you know, pick up any book that advises men how to be more attractive to women. And without fail, there's going to be an area about how the man should listen to the woman more. And she'll find him far more attractive. And it's a really mm-hmm. counterintuitive thing. People are attracted to others that listen to them. You know, you want to be this great orator where, in fact, people are far more attracted to you if you listen to them. Right. I love that. So do you use this on women? <laughs> well, of course not. I would never use anything I, on women. I would never do anything other than be very genuine and be my be the small-time <laughs> boy from Iowa that I am. Yeah, and you know what? It's funny that... We tend to always think that, you know, trying to get to the yes or get to the no and and all of what you're talking about, we tend to think of it as manipulative, don't we? And so manipulative is very negative, but you've got to be able to do it, connect with people. Yeah, you got to connecting with people and building great relationships is manipulative. Oh, it's horrifying. (laughs) You know, in one of the examples, a guy that I admire greatly who writes some great stuff is a guy named Adam Grant. He wrote a phenomenal book called Originals and Also Give and Take. And not that long ago, he wrote a, a piece, uh, I believe it was called The Dark Side of Emotional Intelligence, because it is so effective. And, you know, when I'm often training people, coaching people in negotiations, you have to confront the fact that this might be incredibly manipulative. And so and I say, all right, so how many of you own cell phones? And everybody owns a cell phone. Hey, do you realize that they're in the wrong hands, that these are used for uh, criminal purposes, very evil things? You know, bad people use this tool, the cell phone, to do mm-hmm. bad things. So uh, because bad people use it, you all have to throw your cell phones away. And that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It's not the phone itself that's evil. It's how it's used. Exactly. Yeah, it's so true. You've said a couple of things that I've taken notes on over the last month when I've listened to you being interviewed. One thing that you said is that when business prospers, society prospers. And I love that because I believe that with all my heart. Can you expand on that just a little bit? Because you've gone from, you know, helping on suicide hotlines and negotiating these amazing and sometimes dangerous situations to now helping businesses. So tell me what you mean when you say when businesses prosper, society prospers. You know, I didn't really think about it that much until you know, right after I left the Bureau in 2007, 2008 time frame, and I hadn't paid that much attention to, like, economics and cities and things like that. I only focused on crime, if you will. And I was a terrorism guy for a long time, so I always kept track of different terrorist groups, the IRA being one of those groups, the Irish Republican Army, historically. And, and I know terrorist groups always collaborate with each other, interestingly enough. You know, that it's a profession. They know each other mm-hmm. around the world. The IRA talked to Palestinian terrorists. So I'm getting out, and I notice after I was out, suddenly I stopped hearing about the IRA. And then I also noticed at school, because I got my master's, that people were talking about how hot the Irish economy was at the time. And I thought, all right, so there's a great economy going on in Ireland, and suddenly you don't hear anything about the IRA anymore. Now, being a small-town guy from Iowa, I'm thinking, like, maybe when the businesses are prospering, people are less prone to blow things up and shoot each other. Yes. Shocking, right? Yeah. A revelation. Yeah. Wow. 
And then after that, I looked at a lot of the data from New York City at the time frame because under Rudy Giuliani, whether you like him or not these days, but as mayor of New York City, as they diminished crime, then suddenly the businesses in New York City started doing really well. And Mm -hmm. suddenly then people started having jobs and people started feeling stake in the society. And their crime dropped at the same time as their businesses prospered. Now, these connections are always not direct causal links, but they do correlate strongly with one another. It makes mm-hmm. sense from a small-town mm-hmm. boy from Iowa that when they're when the businesses are doing well, there's going to be people that are going to be doing less harm because they're going to shake in what's going on. Was your dad a businessman? Small-town entrepreneur had his own business, bought what was called a jobber ship from a fuel shell oil company, middleman and grew it into a very prosperous business, worked really, really hard, very blue-collar, hard-working guy. And you said that he was kind of your hero in that regard. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know he was a solid guy, hard-working, high-integrity, you know, prized his family and his community and, you know, spiritual guy, religious guy, but, you know, didn't club you with it. I mean, if you knew Richard Voss, you knew that he went to church on Sundays, but you know, he never tried to convert anybody. He did more walking than talking about he, it. Yeah, he did. He was all, he walked the walk. He was a solid Midwestern guy, is what my father was. Love that. You said something else in a podcast that I had to even, I think I even pulled over to write it down. You said untrustworthy people are easily, now I didn't write down verbatim, because it's too late, but you said trustworthy people really struggle because they trust so much. So trustworthy yeah, people, people trust, trust too much, and then that's how they get stung. That's what you said. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Well, you know, the, quote the golden rule, treat people the way you would like to be treated. That black swan rule is understand the other person and treat them the way they need to be treated. And you mm-hmm. got to get out of your own way. Yep. So I'm trustworthy. Therefore, I want to treat them the way I want to be treated. I'm going to trust them. You know, there's even an academic term. It's called projection bias, assuming the other person is like you. Because you think you're, quote, normal. I think I'm normal. Our first mistaken assumption is that we're normal. We start to project it to other people. We start expecting them to react the way we would react. You know, in in my class, and the flip side is true also. If you're not trustworthy, you're not going to trust, which is stupid. Because then you got people, what happens when a trustworthy person and a not trustworthy person deal with each other? That's a disaster. Mm-hmm. You know, they just can't work it out. they got to collaborate, otherwise they wouldn't be dealing with each other. I ran an exercise in my class at the University of Southern California just the other night where I broke people up into teams and I gave them the option to collaborate or betray the other side. And in analyzing it afterwards, one of the girls in the class, one of the young ladies, says, well, we obviously we can't trust them. We just cheated them. And I said, all right, so you can't trust them because you're not trustworthy. That's what you're telling them. And mm-hmm. then in the same classroom, a couple of the people who had gotten betrayed a couple times, you know, people were asking them what they were thinking. They were saying, like, look, I'm trustworthy. I believe in human nature. I want to treat you the way I want to be treated. I, you know, I want to show you that I'm trustworthy. And it becomes a, an interesting conversation. And unfortunately, people are so focused on what they are, you think your counterpart is the same as you because you figure you're normal, which you're not. No mm-hmm. such thing as normal, just like there's no such thing as rational. Right. <laughs> so true. Okay, Chris, tell me if there's one single thing that a great negotiator does, what is it? 
understand how to use an effective pause and not get freaked out by it. Oh, yes. Wow. There are a lot of people that feel that in order, they have to be controlling the negotiation. In order to have the control, they have to be talking, which means closing their mouth horrifies them. Great mm-hmm. negotiator understands how to go silent and let the other side fill that silence with solid gold. Ooh, fill it with solid gold. Okay. Yeah, a friend of mine, I'm actually getting ready to have lunch with him here today in Los Angeles. I'm lucky enough to run across the former general manager of the Dodgers, the guy who took him from Morris to first in one season, Ned Coletti. And Ned talks about negotiating billion-dollar deals with sports agents who represent people like Barry Bonds. So Ned likes to say that, you know, in a two-hour conversation, there's going to be 90 seconds of solid gold. Well, you have to have your mouth shut in order to get that 90 seconds of solid gold. And you got to be oh, listening to hear it. I love that. And I heard a little bit, there was someone in the background that covered up a little I bit about what, what you said. No, did you say Barry Bonds? Yeah, Ned, Ned, Ned Coletti, when he was a general manager for the Dodgers, and actually before that, he was an assistant general manager for the San Francisco Giants, where Barry Bonds played. So he negotiated Barry Bonds' contract with his agent, Scott Boris, when he was with the Giants. So he negotiated with some crazy sports deals with incredible people and incredible talents. Okay. We've been chatting for about 30 minutes here. I'm going to let you go, but I want to end this with telling everyone to go read his book. If you're in business, you're starting business, and you really want to learn how to connect, because I say connection is currency. If you want to start connecting with people better, communication is everything. I believe that, and he is good at it. Chris Voss with Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. Again, I love that title. I think that we are um, alike. We think a lot of like. And here's the thing. I have an audience of both men and women, but I wrote my book, Unleash Your Moxie, especially for girls, because I feel like women tend to, I see this going on a lot where they want, they, they, they call it this feminine shift and everything is going feminine and that's the way. But let me just tell you, you need to learn how to think like a man too. I believe that with all my heart. So I like to get experts like yourself and start to persuade women to start watching and learning from men and how they negotiate, how they communicate, because we can learn from each other. Chris, is there somewhere you'd like them to go on your website to sign up and learn more? Uh, do you have an email list? Yeah, I do. Uh, thanks for asking. If you text the word, that's right, T-H-A-T-S-R-I-G-H-T, no punctuation and no spaces. If you text that to the number 22828, and that number again is 22828, text that's right, no punctuation, no spaces, and it'll give you the opportunity to sign up for our twice a month free complimentary negotiation advisory newsletter. Short, great tips you can use every day, easy to learn and move forward and get better at negotiation. And it also keeps you up to speed on the training that we're doing around the country and other resources that we have to help people. Perfect. And his website is Black Swan LTD. I think I got that right here. Let me look again. BlackSwanLTD.com. His blog is excellent as well. And I love that little marketing tip for my audience. That text, that's right, to 22828. And doing that can help you stay connected and maybe even start using text and email marketing. Thank you so much, Chris, for letting me interview you today. Okay? That, that was awesome. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Oh, thank you thank very you. much. Thank you. Have a great weekend, everybody. Bye-bye.